0: Well, truly beautiful, beautiful time together, singing and considering all that the Lord has done for us, partaking of the Lord's table, and now coming around the Lord's word. I read a story uh, this week about two old ladies who lived together. I presume their husbands had likely passed on, and on one summer evening, they were sitting together on their porch enjoying the peace and quiet. One of the ladies was listening to the sound of a church choir a few doors away as they practiced for church on Sunday. If you ever come by here on a Thursday evening, you'll, you'll hear our music teams who lead us so well each and every Lord's Day practicing as well. But these two women are sitting out on their porch and one of the ladies is listening to the church choir. The other woman was listening to the sound of the crickets that were chirping. Summer night lends itself to crickets chirping. The woman listening to the church choir said to the other woman, Isn't that a lovely sound? And the woman listening to the crickets replied, Yes, and I understand they do it by rubbing their little legs together. (laughs) You know, it's been well said that sometimes confusion can be humorous, but at other times it can be disastrous. And that's especially true when it comes to spiritual matters. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way through the book of John. Church family, you know where we're at. We're in John chapter 7. And what we'll see in our portion from John chapter 7 this morning is confusion about Christ. And how we must be crystal clear in our hearts and in our minds about who Jesus is as he reveals who God is to us. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said that the most important thing about you is how you answer the question, who is God? You see, even though the Christian has been set free from the penalty and overriding power of sin, there is still the present battle with sin. And what feeds that sin for us as those who have been redeemed by grace is the world, our remaining flesh, and the devil. The world, our flesh, and the devil bring... Fog and confusion even into the hearts and minds of those that have been redeemed. And so we need to be ever clearing away any fog, any confusion that can come over our hearts with the piercing clarity of the sun. We must be ever mindful to not eclipse the sun. As we live our life with that ever-present battle of those things that come into our life, chaotic things that come into our life, that can and do occur in our life. We either lose clarity, gain confusion on Christ and His role in our life. Or we sometimes even fail to regain clarity about who God is through the person of Christ. And so we do need to be ever mindful of what can come along and steal away our joy and confuse us and hinder us as we seek to navigate the path of life path of life has many potholes and challenges and the like. And if we are not ever watchful over our own hearts, we can be led deeper into more and more confusion as believers. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who rightly said concerning the world, which is certainly a place that can bring with it great confusion and ability to mislead us, the people of God, if we're not careful. He said this, quote, Do not be misled by the world. Do not be captivated by it. In fact, see the rottenness, the ugliness, the foulness, and do not allow it to monopolize your time and your attention. You must see through it. Then, having seen through it, keep yourself from it." Quote. To do that, we need Jesus. We need Jesus not just at the entry point of our salvation. We need Jesus for every day of our salvation. Life in His name. You remember the very purpose of this gospel is to have clarity about who Christ is, to believe in Him, and to have clarity about who Christ is so as to keep on believing in Him and to avoid falling into confusion and error in our life. We're told, aren't we, to lean not on our own understanding. That'll lead to confusion and chaos. But instead, we're told, aren't we, by God in His Word... In all our ways, all our ways, what? Acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. Not easy. Not easy, but straight. There's a big difference between the two. In our passage this morning, we'll focus in on verses 25 to 36 of John 7. And we're going to observe, continue really to observe the response that occurs in the hearts and minds of the people at the feast to the teaching of Jesus in the temple. You recall that Jesus went up midway through the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the very popular eight-day festival. And He taught in the temple before thousands of people, including the elite of the day, both the political elite and the religious elite of the day. Well, those folk... All who are in the temple, the thousands upon thousands, they all make up what really are three groups of people whose responses we will witness today. You see, you have before Jesus here the crowd in general. It's the general crowd. Look at crowd. Look at verse 20 again from last week. Verse 20 of John 7, the crowd answered and they said to Jesus, you have a demon. No one seeks to kill you. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. But many of the crowd, it says, believed in him. And so the crowd, uh, the people from every region outside of Jerusalem, they come up to the feast. They don't, they're not locals. Then you have, look at verse 25, you have what are called the people of Jerusalem. Look there. So some of the people of Jerusalem. That's. I found it hilarious anyway, it's a hilarious word actually in the original language. That phrase people of Jerusalem is one word and it's the word Jerusalemites, Jerusalemites. It occurs only here and one other time in Mark 1, Jerusalemites. It's to speak of a a certain group of folk, often they had a bit of a mob mentality. They were fueled by the religious leaders of Jerusalem and they were sort of a mob at times. And the Jewish leaders who were out for Jesus' life, they resided in Jerusalem. And so this mob of people, they knew firsthand that Jesus was on their radar to be killed. And So you have the crowd, then you have the Jerusalemites, and then you have this third group who makes up all in attendance here. The third group is the Jews mentioned throughout. They are the religious leaders, obviously. And you remember from last Sunday how Jesus really confronted them for their hypocrisy. He confronted them for being enamored, enamored that they were those who received the law. They were those who prided themselves on being keepers of the law and teachers of the law. And yet, they were breaking that exact law by wanting to violate that law by killing a person namely Jesus. And so Jesus really highlighted that to them. And he said also back in verse 17, you remember, if you look there again, he said if anyone is to these people, he said if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. He will know if what I'm saying is true. He will know if I have words of eternal life. He will know if I can change the very heart of a person by believing in him. And so To do the will, Jesus is saying, to do the will of God, truth would then be revealed to them. And I want to talk about that very quickly because what that means there in verse 17 is outside of willing to do God's will, there's only confusion. You'll have no ability to navigate life, no ability to bring God glory as you live your life if you're just in a state of confusion. The way to clear the fog and have clarity about how you are to live life, clarity how to navigate the trials and heartaches of life so as to bring God glory, is to do the will of God. It's no surprise that people respond with confusion to what Jesus teaches because they were not willing to do God's will. They have not made obedience an option. Obeying God and seeking to do His will breaks down confusion and ushers in truth that brings in much needed clarity. We need that. You need that. I need that. To be ever looking to do the will of God. Which is to obey God in all that He calls you to. And thus, as Jesus says in John 17, uh, John uh, verse 17 there, you'll be ever receiving truth. For life you want to be shut up from the wisdom of God, refuse to do the will of God. Jesus said to these three groups at once that his teaching is not of human origin. It's not fickle like humanity, but it's from God the Father. And I made mention last week, because it's from God the Father, and doesn't have as its origin fickle man, we can trust Jesus. We can trust Jesus, Don't allow the world, or your flesh or the devil to steal the truth of the reality that Jesus is trustworthy. Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Lay your burdens at His feet. You may not be able to see how you can navigate out of the confusion and the chaos and the hurt, but that's because you're not God. He can, Jesus can. We can trust Jesus through every part of life, the heartaches and the blessings, the storms and the sunshine. And so let's read our passage this morning together now. And then let's pray to ask God to aid our time that it might immensely benefit our hearts and minds and bless our very soul. John chapter 7 verse 25, picking up there. So some of the people of Jerusalem, those Jerusalemites, were saying, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look. He is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he'll not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he will not find him, that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I'm going, you cannot come? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are good. We acknowledge that your Son is trustworthy. We acknowledge that your Word is sufficient. We acknowledge that your Spirit is mighty to work in us works of your love and grace. We come before you now and ask that you might attend the preaching of your word. Bless the hearers of your word, which includes the preacher. And Father, work a mighty work in us because we so desperately need you. Father, we stand aware of the world and our own flesh and the devil. We long to be living free from the confusing influence of that satanic trinity, if you will. And so, Father, bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said in our passage this morning, we'll witness further unfolding of what took place after Jesus taught in the temple during the feast. And last Sunday, we walked through the first portion of this piece here where Jesus really is defending himself. He's defending himself as to the source of his teaching before the Jewish leaders. And that really continues again this morning. So it's the same setting. It's the same context. I want us to once again draw out some truth of this passage and then make some application as we go along. And then at the end, every portion of God's word is relevant for our life. Every portion of John's gospel particularly is glory of the person of Christ to behold. And so to have our affections for Christ affected and warmed, we need to be ever considering the truth of the word of God. You know, I often in the morning will reverse out our driveway to a fully frosted windscreen. And for a while there, I'd grab the co- hose that had cold water in it and spray it on there. And Lisa, being far wiser than I, would tell me that maybe I needed to do it this way or that way. And I hadn't thought of that. And wives save lives. And so I got some warmer water and, and put that on there. And and, and, that, and that would work. But then, you know, there's sometimes when even the warmest of water, particularly yesterday morning, I put some pretty hot water on there, it cleared the windscreen for me, but then by the time I got to the bottom of the driveway it had frozen back up again, I couldn't see where I was going, I made it the way around to this little bend that I like to sit at and if my children were here they'd know because when we take them to school, we sometimes sit on the corner of that little bend and allow the sun to come and and melt away the ice. And I really think that's somewhat of an illustration that's applicable for all of life, but particularly our passage this morning, is that if we don't make use of what's afforded to us, then all that will come is a cold frost. But if we're continually laying our hearts and minds before the warmth of the sun, then our hearts and minds and very soul will be warmed with the affections for Christ. They will be affected if you will we need that and if you're taking notes this morning the first aspect of this passage that is unfolded for us is heading number one we see first in verses 25 to 29 a plethora of confusion a plethora of confusion this could really be a sermon with a single point because confusion is so pervasive in this passage hence the hence the title of the sermon this morning But there's more to it than just confusion. These opening verses certainly do, however, begin with a display of confusion from those who have heard Jesus teach. And no one really can be clearer in their teaching than Jesus. And so sometimes confusion lays in the heart of the listener. Sometimes confusion lays in the heart of... Of the listener. And this is why I think, and why I'll say again, we need ever to be warmed in our affections by the Son through His Word, both read privately and preached publicly, because we don't want confusion in the heart of a listener. Verse 25, look there, it's these Jerusalemites again, I mentioned earlier, and they're saying, look there, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? These Jerusalemites were not, as I said, the out-of-town folk who'd come up for the feast. They lived in the city all year long. And what that means is that these people, they would have been at the feast that was mentioned in chapter 5. Chapter 5 mentions a feast that is prior to the Passover feast that's mentioned in chapter 6. And so then there's another feast in chapter 7. A feast in all three chapters. And these people would have been at all of those. And that feast in chapter 5... These people, Jerusalemites, they would have witnessed firsthand their own city's religious leaders—men they would have known personally, men they would have grown up with, men they would have highly esteemed—literally conspire to kill Jesus. In fact, verse eighteen of John five says that exact thing: that conspire aspiring to kill Jesus was due you remember to the healing of that lame man by the pool which took place on the sabbath they add in verse 26 look there look he's speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him and so i want you to think of the scene jesus had just exposed their hypocrisy of being those who happily perform the works of circumcision on the sabbath But they plan to break the law by killing a person for healing on the Sabbath. Healing on the Sabbath, obviously not wrong to do in God's eyes. And all while Jesus is refuting them and defending himself, this group of Jerusalemites is just watching on, no doubt struck by both the content of Jesus' words, and also with how fearless Jesus is. They were... Absolutely certain that Jesus was the man that the religious leaders wanted dead. They'd witnessed it time and time again. There were people who lived in the city, they were locals. But what they were unsure about, confused about, is why the religious elite and the political elite were doing nothing about it. That's what's confusing them. He's saying amazing and incredible things, and they're saying, and they they're not doing anything we know they want to kill him so what's going on would have been their thought you see the general crowds that came up to the Passover who lived outside of the region they didn't have the insight that these Jerusalemites had and for them and what they knew firsthand this was quite bizarre quite bizarre some Commentators suggest that perhaps the leaders themselves were silent because they were coming to grips that Jesus was actually the long-awaited Messiah. So they're kind of floored into silence. That may be true, but we don't know for certain. But they certainly were silent. And these local folk watched on in a confused state. And contributing to that perplexity was Jesus' manner. His manner. You see... I can say that because the Greek word there in verse 26 for publicly is a word that means, quote, from a lexicon, Greek word dictionary, the trait of being willing to undertake an activity that involves risk or danger, particularly when it involves being honest and straightforward in attitude and in speech. That was our Lord here. He was doing that. He was living that out. Marked boldness and fearlessness in the face of opposition. You see, there's no timidity with our Lord. There's no pragmatism with our Lord. There's no weaseling out with our Lord. There's no compromise with our Lord. Why not? How so? How so and why not? because Jesus trusted God the Father explicitly that's why he always had the right words at the right time never shirked was never ashamed and turn with me to Isaiah 50 for a moment Isaiah chapter 50 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. The prophet Isaiah, moved by the Spirit of God, spoke some glorious and beautiful things about the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. This is the son speaking. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not disobedient. Nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who struck me. And my cheeks To those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Look at verse 7. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. Look at verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You want to know why Jesus was fearless? That was what compelled and sustained Jesus in His earthly ministry as He lived for you. And as He prepared to die for you. So as to ransom and rescue you. So that when this little life that you live now, that you and I both live, that is filled with tribulation, sickness and certain death, that you and I won't then be ushered into eternal punishment in hell He did this. He was compelled and sustained because of his reliance upon the Father. You see, Jesus went to this feast to observe this feast as a matter of law. He kept the law so as to earn a righteousness that you and I do not have. And he went to this feast to proclaim that he is indeed the Messiah, including... Being the very real revelation and explanation of the one true and living God. Jesus and the Father are one. And Jesus was sent by the Father. And He was as bold as a lion, even in the face of hostility. And even as He suffered, He obeyed the Father. Do you recall that it is said of Christ the Son in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says this, He, Jesus, was reviled, and He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten or lash out, but continued entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly. Jesus' life and ministry, as hard as it was, He was the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief, was marked by a specific confidence and boldness. He was willing, as one man said, he was willing to undertake an activity, or as the lexicon said rather, he was willing to undertake an activity that involves risk or danger, particularly when it involved being honest and straightforward in speech and in attitude. On our way back to John 7, I want us to make a very brief pit stop in Acts chapter 4. So turn with me there to Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 13 when you get there. Now as they, that is the religious leaders, the same they of verse 7, the same religious leaders of Israel. Now as they observed the confidence, the boldness of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed You remember last week from John chapter 7, the people were amazed that Jesus was untrained and uneducated. They were amazed, and look what it says. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Last week, we looked at it. This is what astonished the people and the leaders that Jesus was, according to them, an uneducated, unlearned man. He hadn't been to the rabbinical schools for training. Well, they observed the same in the followers of Jesus, in the disciples of Jesus. The significantly contributing factor in giving the disciples such bold confidence to live their life in the struggles and evils of this world and as they battle their own flesh and the devil, is that they had been with Jesus. Are you struggling in life this morning? Well, you need to spend time with Jesus. Do you have a need for boldness right now to live out the Christian life in your workplace, in your life in general, both in word and in deed? Then you need to spend time with Jesus. We have been made joint heirs with Christ. We are in a vital spiritual union with Christ. We are one with Christ. We are therefore able to partake of the same confident boldness of our Saviour. We are able to see through the fog of the world and the lusts of the flesh and the schemes of the devil and live In the face of a confused world and proclaim the excellent exclusive riches of christ that draws out people just as we were drawn out of a confused dark world and ushers them into the same reality that we live in a reality where life is hard in this fallen world but what a sweet frame of reference we have to navigate this world as we look to our all confident and sufficient Savior and spend time with him. And how do we spend time with Jesus? Well, we spend time with him in prayer, we spend time with him in his word, and we spend time with him with his other, with his people. And when we do that we can echo and export such a confident boldness to. You know, we don't have time to go through the book of Acts right now and see literally the countless times the disciples of Christ are equipped with such a boldness in the face of suffering and opposition. It's only by sticking close to Jesus that we, as Jesus' disciples, can overcome the day-to-day battleground in our life. We silence the spiritual forces of darkness that come to keep us in a state of confusion and to keep us in a state of despair. To render us joyless. We render them futile when we spend time with Jesus and look to the Lord Jesus and warm our affections with the love of the Father expressed to us in the Lord Jesus. Boldness to live and boldness to keep on living. Boldness to endure hardship. Boldness to never lose the fight for joy. Boldness to speak what has been spoken to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back to John 7 now. Back to John 7 and these Jerusalemites are standing in silence as they watch the murderous spiritual leaders do nothing. And they begin to ask things like, look at the end of verse 26. They begin to ask questions. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? As I said before, we don't know for sure what was going on in the hearts of the religious leaders, but the people watching on do wonder if they are coming to see Jesus or they could just be simply astonished that an uneducated man is speaking the way. There's multiple things that could be flooring them, but the Jerusalemites ask that question, but then they kind of immediately dismiss the possibility in their own hearts and say something very interesting in verse 27. However, kind of like dismissing that, however, we know where this man is from and whenever the Christ, the Messiah may come, no one knows where he is from. That's such an intriguing thing to say. It is, I want to let you know, a very erroneous way of thinking, actually. And this is what can happen when we are not doing the will of God, when we are not believing in God. We can be given to erroneous ways of thinking. You see, in Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus was born, you remember Herod. Herod was greatly troubled that Jesus had been born. He wanted to be the ruler of all rulers and he loved to be the ruler of all rulers. And so what did he do? He gathered the religious leaders, the same religious leaders that are here in John 7, and he asked them where the Messiah was born. If you go back and look at Matthew 2, the religious leaders had no issue saying at all that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. They actually said... The Messiah is born in Bethlehem to fulfill what Micah the prophet said in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And so these folk here, these Jerusalemites, they are wrong to say what they say in verse 27. It was to be known where the Messiah is from. They think because they know where Jesus comes from, that he cannot be the Messiah. That's major confusion. And I thought about it during the week. Isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't just open up Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and show them that verse that we just read? But he doesn't. You see, there was this idea in this day that the Messiah would come from an unknown place and arrive unannounced and overthrow the Roman oppression. Remember, the Jews were under Roman watch, under Roman oppression. And they believed that the Messiah would come unannounced, arrive, overthrow that oppression by political power, by military might, by using the sword, then and there, usher in a utopia for them. But here was a carpenter's boy. Carpenter's boy. Too common. Too igno- ignoble. Not mighty at all. Jesus didn't fit the mold. I want to say two things about that. Number one, oh how the world needs the truth of who Jesus is. The world is blind and confused. It's in a state of darkness. We must speak the truth to the world around us. And number two, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been like the people here in verse 27? And what I mean by that is, have you ever had Jesus not fit the mold of what you want him to be? That's an important question. Maybe you've wanted Him to give you wealth and health and prosperity. Maybe you've wanted Jesus who removes all your trials in your life. Maybe without even realizing it, the Jesus you have in your mind is not the Jesus who is revealed to us in the Word of God. You are not coming and submitting to the Jesus who is revealed to us in the Word of God. Because the Jesus who is revealed to us in the Word of God promises not wealth nor health, but life, eternal life, peace with God, forgiveness of your sin, both past, present, and future, fellowship with God the Father, the empowering of the Holy Spirit to live through the darkest of valleys and to come out on the other side. That is the Christian life. Anything else but that piercing clarity is confusion from the world, your flesh, and the devil. Someone say, Amen. These people were standing right before the true Messiah. And because he wasn't fitting their mold and meeting their own expectations, they were despondent and their confusion would be costly. They would miss the boat. Look at what Jesus says in response. If you think I'm taking it to places, look at what Jesus says in response. He says, you both know me and know where I am from. And it says at the beginning of verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple. That word cried out is literally almost screaming, yelling, emotional response here from Jesus. You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. And then there's the mic drop, whom you do not know whom you do not know there's real emotion here from jesus it's red hot jesus is saying so you do know me you know me in that i'm from nazareth but you do not know me that i am from the one true and living god the father And I'm not sent by anyone else or even myself, but the Father, the one true God, whom you say you worship. But you, end of verse 28, ticking time bomb, you do not know Him. We need to press pause for a moment, get some altitude, and remember this. John is writing to show us, any reader of this gospel, whether unbeliever or believer, that these people thought that, o- that only that Jesus had come from his own initiative and that he was sent by no one. That's what John wants us to see. The Jerusalemites standing before Jesus had no ability to see through the fog of confusion because they did not know God. And so do you see what the Apostle John is working to do here? He is working to show, in keeping with His purpose, to show that Jesus is the Messiah and is screaming off the pages here, look at Him. Look at Him. You can only know Him truly if you know God. Had these people known God, they would have known that He was the Messiah. And so if you want to know who the Messiah is, then you better know God. And get this, how God has ordained that you might know Him is by believing, verse 29, that Jesus knows Him. Because He is from Him, having been sent by Him. John is just saying here, look at Him. Look at Him. You can only know Him if you know God. And here's how you know God. Look at Him. This is all in line... As I said with the purpose John wrote his gospel. And I want to say here that if you do not know God the Father, then you cannot ever know the Messiah Jesus, whom God the Father sent. This is what John the Gospel is all about. That you might see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and come and believe in Him. The Father and the Son are one, Jesus said. Repeatedly in this gospel. The Father sent the Son, Jesus has said in John chapter 7, repeatedly. Sent Him into the world. And the world only remains in a confused stupor unless it believes that the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world to save sinners. Not from momentary heartache and hurt, but from everlasting suffering and judgment due to the just penalty that our sin deserved. If you know God, you'll know Jesus, for Jesus reveals God to us. And so that's number one, a plethora of confusion. And how true belief in the true Messiah, which comes from the truly amazing grace of God, brings chaos to order and peace to the soul. And if you glance at the clock, you would be like, man, you've got a lot to get through before we're done. And we're going to fly through these other parts a little quicker than we did. I purposely did that, believe it or not. The second aspect that this passage now unfolds for us is, Number two, a plurality of responses now in verses 30 to 32. And so we see see a plethora of confusion. Jesus responds by crying out into the temple, in the temple. And now there's a plurality of responses in response to that heated, red hot rebuke from Jesus to the people. We see two different responses, not a singular response, but a plural response. Response. One part of the crowd stiffens their neck, and the other part of the crowd softens their heart. Choose this day what you would like: a stiff neck or a soft heart. You see, Jesus creates division, truth creates division. Jesus reveals God, the Father, to the world and the world then divides over it. Some hearts and minds receive, some hearts and minds reject. Both form strong convictions. Only one forms the right conviction. Verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's the first response. You want to seize him. You don't want to have confused and cluttered and wrong convictions about who Jesus is. You want piercing clarity about who Jesus is. And then when you think you know him, you need to press on to know him more. He is an endless depth of treasure to adore and behold and find satisfaction from. First response, religious leaders, the crowd, the unbelieving... seek to seize him. But do you want evidence that God is actually revealed as true to us in the person of Christ? This is just a small way. Look at the second half of verse 30. No man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I mean, that just validates that he's been sent by the Father. The Father's in control of all things. They can't touch him. Christ the Son lived and walked in accordance with the divine plan of God the Father. And what evidences the truth of God the Father is that you cannot alter or thwart His plan at all. They could not seize Jesus because it was not His time to be seized. It is a sovereign God who we believe in. So sovereign is He that He granted the gift of saving faith to the other people in the crowd. Look at verse 31. But many of the crowd believed in Him. There you go. Some receive, some reject. Some stiffen their neck and some soften their hearts. When they believed, confusion, gone. Sin's penalty, gone. Hostility between them and the Creator of the universe, gone. Old life enslaved to sin, gone. Gone. Old guilt and shame, gone. Trial and tribulations, still present. But the ability to not live on through them, gone. The ability to endure, still present. Why? Because when you believe, you get a good shepherd and the good shepherd is walking them home. Calling out to them. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Using the preach word to do exactly that. Using the privately read word to do exactly that. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Keep your hearts fixed on me. I have given you life in my name. I and the Father are one. And He sent me to rescue and redeem you. And no one can snatch you. And I and my Father will never forsake you. The third and final aspect of this encounter now that's revealed to us in verses 33 to 36 is what we can call a perplexing point of difference. Look at verse 36 now. What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come? What's that about? Well, you've got to understand that in verse 35 above reveals to us the kind of View that these religious pharisaical leaders of Israel had. Verse 35, when it says, where does this man intend to go and will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? This this is totally sarcastic here. They are saying from a place of puffed up pride, where can this carpenter's boy go that we can't go? And he's not going to go out and start Sharing the good news with Gentiles, is he? That was such an affront to them that God would share news with non-Jews. Get a glimpse into these people here. What is this statement? You'll seek me and will not find me and where I'm going you cannot come. Don't read that as a genuine inquirer. The heart of unbelief is hostile toward Jesus. Do you want a stiff neck? Or a stiff You see the Pharisees and the chief priests verse 36 tells us well no sorry verse um, verse 32 tells us that they had sent officers to seize him. The chief priests and the Pharisees combine together to try and arrest Jesus. They send out the temple police to do so. But I'll tell you what this final little portion here tells me. It tells me that Jesus is aware of his death to come. He knows that six months' time is the Father's plan for him to be crucified. He'll go through the agonies of Gethsemane. His human will will not want to push forward. But out of love, in his human will, he will push forward. From love for you. And he will die upon that cross for you. But as he's mocked here by these religious leaders. For saying to them in verse 34. You'll seek me and will not find me. And where I am you cannot come. He's saying I'll die upon that cross. But the cross is not the end. Because I will rise and then I'll go back to where I came from. Namely, the Father's right hand who sent me from glory. And you cannot and you will not come and nor will you find me. Access denied. That's what he's saying to them. Because you did not humble yourself and believe in me. Stiff neck, not soft heart. You know, back in John chapter 6 verse 62, Jesus said... What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, here now, that what if is made certain, as Jesus says for the first time, that he will ascend back to the Father. The cross was when Jesus says it is finished, about our sins being atoned for. But when he rose again, he further purchased for us the blessing of newness of life in Jesus life never ends and no one can thwart the plans of God Jesus even said about his death in John chapter 10 that no one takes his life from him but he and his father lay it down and so look at the differing point of view the religious leaders of Israel had in verse 36 what is this statement you will seek me and will not find me. They had no reference at all. Well, Lord willing, we'll pick up a beautiful portion of Scripture next week as Jesus responds again to them. But let's apply something to our own lives and then we're done. We saw earlier that we are united to the confidence and boldness of Christ. We saw from the book of Acts that when People believe and receive the Holy Spirit. They are marked by a confidence and certainty and trust in the challenges of their life as they seek to live out the Christian life, which no one can do, by the way, except Christ working in us. We share in that divine power. We've been made partakers of that. Peter, the apostle, went on to tell us because he learned that firsthand, right? Well, not only do we share in all that confidence and boldness, we also share in the frailty and the confusion of the crowds too. We are redeemed. We have an altogether new nature. But we have an unredeemed flesh. and We have the world and the devil that assaults us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine nor comprehend. The Apostle Paul exhorted the church to not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. We share in the frailty and confusion of the people at the feast. You see, the tragedy for some of the people in the crowd this day was that in the midst of a feast that was to celebrate the presence and care of God, they were not able to recognize God in their midst, in the person of Christ. That's a tragedy. And I want to say to you and I, and to myself, That being a believer places us into a kingdom that is to celebrate the presence and care of our God. And may we never fail to recognize the presence and care of our God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for this time once again. Lord, as we say amen at the end of this prayer, we live in a world that seeks to distract us and make us love its trinkets and treasures. We carry around an unredeemed flesh that has fleshly impulses. And we live under the constant assault of the devil and his minions. But Father, I pray that when we say amen at the end of this prayer, that you would give us by your grace a glimpse of the truth that we've seen this morning. Help us to not be confused or help us to not even have the wrong thinking like these people displayed to us. But help us to be those who, it's obvious we've been with Jesus. Each and every one of us faces a unique predicament. But you're not far from us, you're with us. You're working in and through us. Help us to trust in you like we see your Son trusting you explicitly. The truth that your Son spoke of in Isaiah 50 is in many ways true of us. We're compelled and sustained because you are with us. And you uphold us by your omnipotent hand. And so help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.